2: Multiple choice. So how do most people find a new podcast to listen to? Three choices. One, from social media. Two, advertising. Three, from their friends who say, hey, this is a great podcast. You really ought to listen to it.
3: Well, Rich, I guess since we don't really do any advertising, (laughs) um, I'll knock that one out. But I hope it's number three. That's certainly how I find out about most podcasts. And you'd be right. Popular podcasts are spread by word of mouth, from one friend to another, so if you like what you hear on How Do We Fix It, tell your friends about us. And if you don't, keep very quiet. (laughs) Right. So today's episode is The Sex Abuse Crisis in the Catholic Church with Maggie Van Dorn.
4: The church is marred in a really ugly way by this crisis, and... I feel like as a member of this family, it's really incumbent upon me to work for its reform and for its healing. And as long as I see hope in the church and see hope that that is possible, then I'll stay and fight. Our
3: show is about fixes.
1: Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How How do we we fix fix it? it?
4: How
3: do we fix it? It just seems like this Catholic sex abuse crisis never ends. Yeah,
2: and there have been so many shocking examples. Last year, the Pennsylvania grand jury report, which revealed over 1,000 children had been abused by Catholic
3: priests across six dioceses over seven decades. Seven decades. Today we look at the crisis from a unique perspective through a series of podcasts made by Catholics about the crisis in their church and what's been done about it. They spoke with survivors still traumatized many years after they were abused, people who left the church, and the reformers who stayed.
2: Maggie Van Dorn is host and executive producer of this excellent podcast series, Deliver Us. Let's hear a brief excerpt from Deliver Us and a few of the survivors who were abused. I will go in a Catholic church only for weddings and funerals.
0: I still have my faith in God. I still have my faith in Jesus Christ. I don't have any faith whatsoever in the institutional church. I do indeed consider myself Catholic.
3: And at the same time, I'm disgusted and frustrated. He molested me.
1: He molested my siblings, and I haven't seen him in 30 years.
2: And so I followed him upstairs to the rectory where he lived, and he closed the door behind me, and my life took a different turn. In the
4: seminary, the attitude was very
2: much, these are some priests from the 50s and 70s that messed up, but it's not really a risk anymore. I think the challenge for Catholics is... How do we still be part of? Should we still be part of? Should we still love this community despite its flaws? We're here at the America Media Studios where the podcast was recorded. Thanks for joining us on How Do We Fix It?
4: Thank you so much for having me. So,
2: Maggie, first let's talk about the crime of sexual abuse by priests. How awful has this been for so many people?
4: It truly has been awful. Um, and I think it was awful in the past. It has been awful in the more recent past. And and hopefully it will be less awful in the future. But it was especially awful in I think 2002 is when most of us came to understand the sexual abuse crisis in the church through Boston Globe Spotlight reporting. So we saw one priest, Father Gagan, became the focus of Spotlight's reporting, and he had molested over 130 children. So this is one priest, 130 children. But the really scary part was that he wasn't alone, that uh, the Spotlight team found over 250 priests in the boston area alone had sexually abused children so that was a tragedy in 2002 the church has issued a, a series of reforms since but then we had this second wave of the crisis hit last summer uh, which you alluded to richard with the pennsylvania grand jury report and so the scope and size of that was absolutely devastating and overwhelming for so many catholics and um, U.S. citizens alike.
2: And this this crime of of sexual abuse of children, I can't think of anything worse apart from murder.
4: Mm -hmm. And that's what survivors have said, that this is a kind of murder of the soul. And many have taken their own lives um, as a result or have struggled with addiction or uh, different kinds of mental illness. And so this is something that really does affect someone in a profound way throughout their lives and even intergenerationally.
3: This may seem like kind of a, a dumb question, but I, I just can't get my mind around why it happens in the first place. I mean, why are people driven to abuse children and young adults like that? I just don't mm-hmm. get it.
4: Mm-hmm. I didn't get it either, and I think that's part of why I wanted to start Deliver Us this podcast. And when I spoke with Dr. Tom Plant, he's a psychologist and a professor at both Santa Clara University and Stanford, and he said that we really don't have a clear formula for what drives someone to commit this kind of abuse. When we see sexual abuse, there is comorbidity with other psychological problems uh, like addiction, um, depression, anxiety. Right? There's this. Whole- you mean on, whole- on that
3: part of the. Per, on, on the perpetrator yes
4: on the on the part of the perpetrator and i think asking that question you can do so from an individual perspective like psychologically you know what is one bad apple but another question that i think is perhaps more relevant today is to say how did it persist and how did the institution enable this sort of behavior you know so if it if it happened as it did with father gagan several times and that priest was then shuffled around to a different parish or diocese and the truth of this was covered up, um, then the institution is just as guilty in a sense, Uh, and and maybe more so.
2: So it's not just the abuse of of children. There's also the abuse of of young seminarians. Talk about the case of the highest-ranking U.S. cardinal he used to be, Theodore McCarrick, uh, what was he accused of?
4: The news of Cardinal the- or former Cardinal Theodore McCarrick's abuse came to us last summer, summer of 2018, um, just before the story of the grand jury report broke. And he was one of the highest ranking cardinals in the United States and had also been involved in um, helping to draft some of the early reforms in the church uh, back in 2002. And so the story came to us because a survivor came forward. Uh, This was a young boy that he had abused in the 1970s, and he came forward to the Archdiocese of New York, and a lay review board found him to be credibly accused of child abuse. We saw that he was not just guilty of abusing a minor, but also had been guilty of abusing lay adult seminarians since. And so... The reforms that the Catholic Church had enacted in 2002 um, first were only directed towards the protection of minors. They weren't looking at vulnerable adults. And then secondly, bishops hadn't included themselves in the policies to hold clergy accountable. So it was priests that were being held accountable, but not bishops.
3: You say that one of the worst things that happens in the church is something called clericalism, Hmm. Can you explain what that is?
4: Yeah, clericalism is treating a priest or a cleric or an or an ordained clergy person as though they are superior to that of lay people in the church. Um so it can manifest in a lot of ways, but it's usually a deference, you know, father knows best, just the presumption that father could do no wrong, that uh a priest is above the law.
3: And was the idea when this stuff started to come out after the spotlight uh, investigations, do you think the church was trying to protect that institution of respect for the clergy? I mean, that's part of the reason they, they didn't move as quickly or part of the reason that they, they allowed these things to go on prior to that uh, mm-hmm. and just shuffled these priests around when these allegations came out. Do you yeah. think that was partly to protect this tradition? Mm-hmm.
4: Yeah, I think any institution uh, is going to be faced with this challenge of of how do you deal with deeply shameful behavior, you know, within your own community. And that that is definitely true here in the Catholic Church. It's true elsewhere. But there are other, other factors, I think, that are relevant. And one of them is that we as a society weren't looking at sexual abuse in quite the same way in the 70s, 80s, and 90s when it was most rampant as we are today. But I think um, the the level of awareness that we had around like grooming practices or, or just sometimes the nuances of assault, that has become much more prominent in our Me Too conversations.
2: Yeah. What are grooming practices?
4: I think this is when Someone in usually a, a position of authority or leadership or trust really in someone's life um starts by being kind and um thoughtful and caring um but also like slowly pushing boundaries um I mean, really the best way to hear about this is from survivors who experienced it.
2: Yeah, let, let's, let's talk about that, or mm-hmm. let, let's include that. This was also covered in Deliver Us, the podcast series.
4: And that's the problem with clericalism. It sidelines non-ordained voices and concentrates power in priests and bishops, who, in the Catholic Church, are always men, which then raises the question— What does gender have to do with this? So I think gender is really important and maybe underanalyzed. This is Julie Rubio, a professor at the Jesuit School of Theology at Santa Clara University. Julie's been writing a lot lately on sexual violence and clergy sexual abuse. One of the things that really stands out for anybody looking at sexual violence is that men are the vast majority of perpetrators. So that's true in the church, but that's true in society generally. So we kind of have to ask why. Why is it that men become perpetrators of violence, and what maybe do problematic conceptions of masculinity, like, say, toxic masculinity, have to do with sexual violence inside the church, outside the church? Priests are raised in the same culture as other men, so it makes sense that they could absorb some problematic ways of thinking.
2: We've been talking about that term clericalism, Maggie, Um, There are some women you interviewed for Deliver Us for your podcast series, the, the Fortney sisters.
4: Yeah, the Fortney sisters spoke at the Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report, and you can hear a lot about how their abuser used the older sisters to groom the younger sisters into thinking that his behavior was acceptable or normal.
2: Let's hear from them now.
4: And I do remember feeling uncomfortable, but I never questioned it. And I was very embarrassed as a little girl. He sensed that with me. And a word he used with me a lot was squeamish. He'd be like, oh, you're squeamish, which made me feel bad that I was squeamish. Therefore, I didn't say anything to anybody about it. And then eventually I saw that he would do it with my sister, Patty, you know, hug her the same way.
3: After the Spotlight series came out in 2002, the church responded with something called the Dallas Charter. What is that?
4: The Dallas Charter is a series of reforms that the U.S. Catholic bishops put together in Dallas. And in the area of prevention, It establishes psychological screenings for priests. It has background checks for all those engaged in youth ministry. Uh, It has safe environment trainings for those working with children um, so that you can detect grooming or spot any sort of signs of abuse that are going on. Um, And then in terms of accountability, it issued a zero tolerance policy. So that means that if A priest or anyone working in Catholic ministry is found to be credibly accused of abuse, that they are immediately removed from ministry. And when we do receive any kind of allegation, it is directed to law enforcement or to civil authorities and also to a diocesan lay review board. A a lay
2: review board meaning a, a review board composed of people who are not clerics.
4: Exactly. So I
2: assume this has made a difference.
4: It absolutely has. Um, abuse still happens, and uh, but what we have seen is that it has been reduced to a trickle. And I think part of that is because we've also just seen a bell curve in society where the height of abuse was in the seventies, eighties, and nineties, and that there has been a lot of cultural shifts and our understanding has changed. And you know, spotlight galvanized our nation, but we do not see the same kind of abuse happening in the church. And when it does happen, it is dealt with swiftly.
3: Now, sexual abuse isn't something that's just contained within the Catholic church. We've seen reports of abuse in the Orthodox Jewish community, evangelical Christianity. There was just a piece in the Houston Chronicle Mm -hmm. about abuse in the Southern Baptist church. How similar are those cases?
4: Actually, uh, I just I was reading the, the reports from the Houston Chronicle, and they are directly analogous. I mean, it is almost haunting to see the parallels uh, between those cases and those within my own Catholic community. Um, we've also seen it in the Boy Scouts. Uh, we also saw it on the U.S. Olympic gymnastics team with Larry Nasser. Um, we've seen it across institutions, and sadly, the, the behavior is, is pretty consistent.
2: I think there are misconceptions about the Catholic sex abuse crisis. And and one that immediately comes to mind is that celibacy is to blame, that, that priests take a vow not to have sex, not to get married. And this is highly unusual. This is not something that the rest of us do. Sex is a normal part of life. And that Maybe they're screwed up because of this.
4: Mm -hmm. Sure. I mean, that's something that we we confront in the second episode of Deliver Us. And I think it's a fair question. You know, like celibacy isn't a very uh, modern contemporary practice for people. And I think it can be suspect as a result. Um, What I think is important is to to come back to the data, to sort of the, the empirical evidence that we have around this. So in 2002, the U.S. bishops... Commissioned a report and it's called the John Jay Report. And it was completed by the, the John Jay College of Criminal Justice here in New York City. And that report found that four to six percent of Catholic clergy had been guilty of sexual abuse. If you
2: sounds like a high number, wow.
4: four to six percent does. However, when you look at the rates in society at large it it actually isn't i mean it's very difficult to get comparable rates with any other institution because no other institution has produced a study on this scale before right so we can't go to the southern baptists and say what's the rate of clergy sexual abuse in your community because they haven't done this investigation right but child usa which is Uh, an organization that has researched this heavily, finds that one in four girls and one in six boys have been sexually assaulted. One person can abuse multiple people, but it does reveal just how prevalent sexual abuse is in society. So to get back to your question about celibacy, right? This is happening throughout society and Other institutions do not have the same level of record keeping, of really meticulous record keeping, and the John Jay report that the Catholic Church has produced. And so I don't think that we can, in this case, blame celibacy when it is happening in families and, you know, just as frequently with non-celibate men.
3: Another common assumption that you challenge is the idea that gay priests are to blame for this.
4: Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So the problem is the same with celibacy, I think, in that you are trying to pin sexual abuse on sexual desire when actually it is much more about power and access. When we look at the Catholic Church, we see that the vast majority of these abusers are what psychologists call situational generalists, meaning that they will abuse A person when they can exploit a position of power over them that's something that we see echoed in me too as well that that when we look at rape rape isn't about desire it's as much as it is about exerting power and control over another person so it's difficult to sustain that argument that this is about desire, either homosexual desire or heterosexual desire um, that has been chastened by the vow of celibacy.
2: So sexual abuse isn't just about sex. It's exactly. about power.
4: Exactly. And I feel like that is the recurring theme throughout Deliver Us.
2: It's how do we fix it. And we're speaking about the Catholic sex abuse crisis with Maggie Van Dorn. And we'll be talking about solutions next. I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs.
1: Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter-shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.
3: So, Maggie, solutions. This is such a heartbreaking topic. Um... What is happening out there that seems to be working?
4: Well, as we discussed earlier, the Dallas Charter is working, that we do have these safeguards in place, that we do have uh, channels for reporting, that we do have external accountability. Right? And,
2: and that was a huge change compared to what was in place before.
4: Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. And so so that's been in effect for over 17 years.
3: And it seems like something that other institutions should study and perhaps model their policies on. I
4: mean, that is the hope that, you know, the silver lining in this horrible crisis is that if the Catholic Church is able to pave a way forward, that that might be some sort of model for other institutions to learn from.
2: But the Dallas Charter has really pretty severe limitations. It didn't. Address the abuse of young adults, mm-hmm. um, and also it didn't hold bishops and church leadership accountable for their behavior, specifically covering up the past abuses.
4: Mm-hmm. That's right, um, and that has been something that we have seen a lot of advocacy for in the church uh, as of as of recently. Um, so, a couple of things have changed in the, in the past few years. Um, In 2016, Pope Francis wrote a letter, and the letter was called Like a Loving Mother, and it called for bishops to be held accountable for any sort of cover-up. And then actually just recently, May 9th of 2019, Pope Francis followed up with a law, a sort of universal law, which said that Throughout the world, dioceses have to create a system by which they can ensure the reporting, the mandated reporting of both abuse and its cover-up. It has required a lot more to get the rest of the world sort of up to speed.
2: Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Is that one reason why the Church, and the Vatican in particular, has been so slow to act? Because while in the United States there's been kind of... Almost universal outrage over this, yes. that there hasn't been the same response in, in many other parts of the world.
4: Yeah, I think we have to remember that the U.S. church has been confronting this for almost two decades, and we are appropriately outraged, and I think that we should continue to advocate for these reforms. Um, but At this Vatican summit just in February of 2019, um, we saw that a lot of bishops from around the world arrived and really didn't have a sense of just how grave or serious the problem of sexual abuse was in the church. And so Pope Francis has had this challenge of really getting Catholics from around the world on board.
3: One problem in the u s for victims of all sorts of of sexual abuse is that the statute of limitations usually means that if they don't come forward till decade or two after the events in question it's hard for them to go to the authorities for any kind of justice because there's no way to to prosecute the crime mm-hmm. uh, Is that changing and and what should we do about that
4: mm-hmm. well it- Yes, it is changing and we can do something about it. Um, We should do something about it because it's a problem that uh, an eight-year-old has been expected to come forward with stories of abuse, let's say within two years of the abuse taking place So by the time they're 10. We know that doesn't happen. We know that it takes decades for people to come to terms with what happened to them and to say anything. Um, So we know that these statute of limitations have to be changed they are changed at a state level and so they vary quite dramatically across the united states and several states have already begun to widen or extend those statute of limitations
2: you say the motivation in most cases for sexual abuse is power mm. what about giving women more power in your church
4: i'm for it <laughs> yeah i'm absolutely for it um I I think there are a lot of ways that women can exercise power and leadership in the Catholic Church. But I suspect that you might be alluding to ordaining women.
2: Yeah, that's one thing. But I I could also see, for instance, even if you didn't ordain women, having confession or some forms of of spiritual therapy Mm -hmm. between individuals, not just being to the to your local priest, but also to other people in in the church, yeah. so that there's a there's a deeper relationship between church members.
4: So, I would argue for women's leadership in the church at at almost every level, um, and there are many different ministries. I myself have a, a, a master's of divinity, meaning that I am actually trained as a minister. And so I know that there are so many ways for women to serve in leadership positions that don't involve ordination. Um, But as we've seen these lay review boards, that's a great example of, of women to be heavily involved, particularly in the abuse crisis. I think getting involved at a local parish level, whether it is Sunday school, whether it's church finances, um, whether it is pastoral ministry, there are actually so many, so many different ways we can do that. Um, The tricky thing about ordaining women, and I I do want to address that directly, you could have an influx of women in church leadership, fine. That doesn't actually solve for abuse that is perpetrated by men. That would change the overall rates of Catholic clergy. But it doesn't change the the people who would be perpetrating, anyways. Does that make sense?
2: It does, but uh, but I, as an outsider, it would seem to me that that diversity is important, and that and that having women at the top ranks making crucial decisions would make sense.
4: Yes, absolutely, I, and I don't disagree with you. And I think that gender absolutely functions in really powerful ways, and that having women um, in positions of authority matters. I don't think that it is an immediate fix. I think that we need to embolden the laity, that is ordinary Catholics, men and women, to be an active participant in the life of their church. And I think that will actually change things.
3: One thing that we see in a lot of organizations that have major ethical breakdowns is a lack of transparency. I know you're a big advocate for transparency in the church. How does it work?
4: So in the past year, we've seen transparency through religious orders and dioceses disclosing past records of abuse. Um, And that means that most of these cases are decades old, um, but they're still important to reveal. I think, one, because it can be validating for the survivor to see that their perpetrator has been named publicly, um, even if the statute of limitations has run up and they can't pursue justice that way. Um, and then also it it's as simple as, I think, being honest and transparent and really offering a public confession of sorts of like, this is what we have done. Um, this is what we have to be responsible for and accountable. And if the court of law can't hold perpetrators to account, then the church can at least acknowledge that.
2: So as a young woman member of the church who decided to stay and are... Her- and is fighting for reform, are you hopeful that this crisis will at least ebb or will be dealt with in, in, an, in an honest way?
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the face of the Catholic Church for me, for most of my life, hasn't been about the abuse crisis. It has been largely, you know, around these social justice issues that I have been working with the homeless and the incarcerated and immigrants and the poor and the most marginalized of our society. And it has been the Catholic faith that has brought me to these places and that has taught me to see the dignity in every human person. And the Catholic faith and tradition is much longer and fuller than this particular point in history we talk in kind of Catholic speak about the communion of saints that I feel like I'm friends with St. Teresa of Avila and I'm friends with St. Catherine of Siena and all of these figures and luminaries and also people today who are part of this faith community that have inspired and guided me. And that is the church to me. Now the church is Marred in a really ugly way by this crisis. And I feel like as a member of this family, it's really incumbent upon me to work for its reform and for its healing. And as long as I see hope in the church and see hope that that is possible, then I'll stay and fight.
3: Thank you, Maggie Van Dorn.
2: Maggie Van Dorn. Back in a minute, Jim and me. Our conversation on how do we fix it.
3: One thing that strikes me about this, Richard, in a strange way, it reminds me of the episode we did about the Dieselgate scandal at VW. That horrible corruption and unethical behavior can take root in an institution, and then when the efforts come to to, to root it out, the institution kind of closes ranks. So it's interesting to see that the church has, not in a perfect way, and certainly there's a lot of work to be done, but the impression I'm getting is from Maggie is there is a really sincere and good faith effort going on here, and let's hope it continues.
2: And And one of the things is the way, once again, we say this a lot, the way that media have covered uh, this abuse crisis they 've rightly focused on survivors on abuse victims, but there wasn 't nearly as much coverage of the Dallas Charter that we found out about before listening to Deliver Us, the podcast series. I had never heard of it and and I feel that coverage of solutions by journalists is is really an important part of this, because hopefully, as horrible as this is, other institutions can learn
3: from the mistakes of the Catholic Church. Right. Also, on the subject of media, what an amazing podcast this is. I mean, from the very first words that you hear, this is just a beautifully produced and very honest and rich podcast series. And what really strikes me is what an a great medium podcasting is for this kind of challenging material because it's so personal and you really get to hear from these people, from the victims and from others, in a way that wouldn't be at all uh, as, as intimate or honest if you were seen on TV or just reading, no matter how good the magazine article is, there's something about hearing the voices that is just very moving and very important. So both of us, I think, really couldn't recommend this podcast more, even for people who, who aren't Catholics. This is How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs.
2: And our producer is Miranda Schaefer. We're a production of Davies Content. We make podcasts for companies and nonprofits. Find out more about what we do at DaviesContent.com. Thanks for listening. Okay, great. Thanks, so. how? That was great. Oh, thank, thank you.
1: Hold up.